Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I was reading that after it follows, you kind of plan to wrap up the projects you were working on and take a sabbatical, take a little bit of time off. It's kind of been an ongoing um, aspiration for me. Um, so, yes and no. <laughs> uh, I've sort of gotten to a place now where I still have a couple of things that I'm working on, but it's probably the most low-key that my schedule has been in, in a really long time. And that's kind of been a process for me to get to that point. So, while it didn't really work out in the way that I expect wanted it to necessarily it's worked out in a, in a way that it worked out in the way that it worked out and kind of learned a lot about myself in that process as far as, uh, you know, my own relationship with work, with taking on things and the experience of, you know, getting better at saying no to things that I maybe don't want to do and just realizing how, how much time things take and all that sort of stuff. So I'm in a pretty good place now. Yeah, I guess what you were saying there about, you know, learning to say no to things you don't really want to do. That's kind of a youthful thing as well, isn't it? You kind of always say yes when you're younger. Yeah. It's kind of just a natural part of maturing a little bit, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, in the beginning, yeah, I just uh, I had a lot of energy and curiosity about a lot of things. And, and also I was trying to develop a career. So I was very keen to work on all sorts of things. And pretty much any opportunity that came my way, I was going to get get involved with. And then over time, you start to figure out like what you're actually interested in and what you're maybe not so much. And as you as you experiment and explore lots of different things, you you are just you have more experience and you're, you're able to make better choices about what how to use your time. And if you're fortunate, you know the the, the financial element is maybe a little less. There's a little less pressure in that regard too, so you can be a little bit more um, selfish <laughs> in a good way. Has 
the projects that you are still working on at the moment, have you noticed kind of the slightly more low-key workloads? Has it impacted the way that you kind of approach them and how you're kind of working on them creatively right now? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I've gotten to a point where I'm very protective of my my schedule and the amount of time and stress that I'm putting on myself. So um, it's it's not that often that I put myself in a very stressful work situation at this stage. Um, I think part of that is just learning how to identify the types of situations that I one could get into that could be kind of stressful and intense. Then I've sort of tried to gravitate towards projects that I thought would be a little a little less stressful, um, more fun, you know, how, you know, kind of fig- trying to find the right fit for me at this stage in my career where I'm a little less motivated by ambition maybe. And I'm a little bit more motivated by trying to rekindle my passion for what I do. And I think part of that involves limiting the amount of external factors like the the amount of external pressures that are on me so that I can just kind of focus on making stuff and and enjoying what I'm doing. You said that you you're kind of motivated by looking to rekindle your passion for what you do. Do you find that if you put too much pressure on yourself it can have a negative impact upon the passion? Is that what can kind of Yeah, turn that down a little bit? I think after a really difficult project whether it's something that I'm really proud of or something that was just difficult for maybe extracurricular reasons, those experiences can kind of take a toll um, over time. You know, it can create um, burnout or um, maybe a little bit of like PTSD (laughs) of some kind. There is a reason that I got involved with the kind of work that I do in the first place and there was a genuine passion for it. And that's never really gone away, but it's kind of like, I guess it's like a flame or something. And you kind of have to leave it alone sometimes for it to like re get strong again. Um, Catch a light again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that's kind of been something that I've been working towards and like nursing (laughs) for a a long time. (laughs) Uh, You know, with your schedule and keeping yourself, not putting too much pressure on yourself, do you find there are other structures that you kind of put in place to protect that? creativity and perspective and passion for what you do yeah um i don't put any expectation on myself to work on weekends i don't schedule anything in the morning um i usually do most of my if i have to take a meeting or talk to people i usually do it at the end of the week stuff like that helps i also try to think long term about what i've committed myself to and over time i've gotten more and more conservative about scheduling things because You know, you can say yes to something, just those three letters might, you might be handing over someone years of your life as far as your, like your, your creative output. So um, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, And it's not always obvious how big of a deal it is to say yes to something. So yeah, like I said, I become a lot more protective of my time and, and also my, my interests have kind of shifted a little bit over the years. Uh, I'm, I think I'm less keen on doing soundtracks at this point, and I'm more keen on finding other outlets for for my creativity. Um, and I also have kind of a backlog of like personal projects that I want to get out because I've been so focused on soundtracks for so long that you know, kind of some other things have kind of um, 
fallen by the wayside. Is that when you say soundtracks, do you mean just for film and video games or because you did a theater piece a few years back, right? I've done a little bit of like theater stuff here and there. I worked on a kind of like a dance project a couple years ago and um, uh, I've sort of been involved with a theater project on and off the last couple of years. But yeah, it's like largely been games and 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 uh, linear stuff like film and um, a little bit of cartoons. Uh, are you motivated to kind of find new aspects of your creativity? Is that why you're a little less likely to go for soundtracks now? Because you've kind of explored a fair amount there. Because you've done a variety of styles in the stuff that you've done. Yeah, I think I do feel like I've accomplished just about everything that I've wanted to accomplish in in the realm of soundtracks. I don't have some sort of like burning desire to be like the top person or whatever. And I think I've been doing it long enough that my priorities have just changed at this point. I'm in a place now where I feel like um, I can go in a lot of different directions. I'm trying to like honor that the privilege of being in that position to, to, to make some different choices, maybe to kind of re like I was saying, like reconnect with kind of my, my what kind of motivates me um for a long time there was kind of just a base interest in seeking out novelty and and allowing the project opportunities that came my way to to help facilitate that and i still there is still an element of that for me but it's not as much going to be like these really huge three four five year projects I'm still, I'm, we're wrapping up a game actually called Solar Ash that I've been working on, on and off for the last like four plus years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I think at this stage of my life, I'm just not that keen on working on projects for that long, unless it's something that I've like, maybe it's my own project or something that I would, I would be willing to do. But how does that work for like improvement and growth? Because if I look back at, you know, podcasts I did a few months back, I feel like I've radically improved. So if you're working on a score for four years, do you feel like you improve as a composer in the interim? And then how do you kind of make it sound cohesive if you're constantly growing and learning? Do you find you're constantly going back and tweaking stuff that you made at the start? Or Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's it's not easy to do that. Well, for this project, I haven't really been writing that much music. I There were, there was, there were stages where I was writing, but uh, ultimately um, we've sort of, uh, the uh, audio director at the studio has ended up doing a lot of the music. For a lot of different reasons, but uh, um, on a previous project, Hyperlight Drifter, uh, that game took a few years, three, three plus years maybe, and it was a similar kind of experience in the sense that I wrote music really early, and then um, I wrote a bunch of music at the end, and it was it was challenging to bridge such a long gap, and I definitely by the end of the project felt like I was somewhere else, like I wasn't in the same place that I was when I started. So it was a little bit of a struggle to kind of like get back into that headspace. That's not something that's easy to do based on my experiences working on games. Especially if it's a larger game, I would, if I could, I would just wait as long as possible to, to actually write music until the game is in a position where it's fairly, you know, fairly solidified. And, uh, you know, there may be some work in the beginning that you have to do just to help direct just to help, you know, kind of move the project in a particular direction. Like it would be weird to not have like any music concepts (laughs) like for years. 
But do you have tap music when you're working on games, or do they not use that at all? Um, some people do, but it's not as it's not nearly as common as it is in film to to use a uh, temp temp music. Um, but certainly there be might be references and stuff like that. Do you tend to find that say you're working on a project that like was saying you know for three years or whatever? Do you find a film or a game? Ch- tends to change more radically throughout the the kind of timeline and the process games games are much more volatile i think not to say that films can't change in fundamental ways um things can be chopped out or whatever but you know there's a script and then there's a shoot and so you have all the footage like they might do a reshoot or something but in most cases you're going into the composition process with like the film is like 90% where it's going to be or something as far as its structure. Um, but then that, that last 10% is like a very challenging 10% in the sense that they could edit all the timing of all the sequ- all the sequences and they might rearrange, they might rearrange things and all of that has an impact on um, the, the writing of the music obviously. And, and you can get into a position where you're like having to re re, structure music over and over again and so there's like a delicate balance there with like figuring out the right timing to do things and there are a lot of different ways to approach that i mean there are directors who work with their composers early and have the composers write a bunch of music and then they use the music to actually cut the movie uh, i'm not a particularly large fan of that because i don't like to write music endlessly did you do that on triple frontier we did a little bit of that on triple frontier yeah we did a little bit of blind like writing um which i think it, it helped. Uh, it helped kind of figure out. It helped them. Um, it was challenging for me to write, to be writing like lots of extra music in that way. But in some of the other film projects that I've worked on, I didn't really do any. We, we tried actually on Under the Silver Lake, we tried to do where I would write music basically straight to picture with no, like uh, without temp. And uh, that didn't really work. Um, it was too, it was too labor intensive to do that. Basically, you know, I spent all this time like scoring, scoring a scene. And uh, if the director didn't like it, like, you know, because it was early on and we were still trying to figure out the sound. I mean, it could be it was just not the the logistics of it didn't really work out in the sense that, you know, editing is doesn't take that long. But writing music does at least like, you know, making significant changes uh, is is easier with an, with editing than it is in, with music. So we we went back to the way we worked on It Follows, which was using temp music. What was temp? So in It Follows, it was uh, Square Pusher. I think Trent Reznor. There was some John Carpenter stuff. There was Christoph Penzaretsky. Yeah, that was most of it. Uh, oh oh, and then there was a bunch of music of mine from from the game Fez, like quite a bit actually. It was a really functionally very very confident temp score in the sense that they they pretty much knew exactly what they wanted functionally and that was really helpful for me because I could just look at that and know that they kind of knew what they were doing and I could just come in and basically riff on the function of the music that they had laid out but try to make it original and uh, that process worked really well for us and so we ended up doing a similar thing on under the Silver Lake too. Why initially did you try and go for something a little different on Under the Silver Lake? Because on It Follows, we did the temp score thing. For the most part, it worked really well. There was one issue for me, which was David was really fond of some of the, the director was really fond of the music from Fez. So some of those cues are really challenging for me to 
replace. Uh, it was kind of weird trying to do something better in, in his eyes uh, than something I had, I had written before for something else. It was kind of a weird position to be in. Um, and also, you know, I was still relatively new to film at that point. I was, I had only scored one movie. So, I mean, I'd done like short films and cutscenes and games and stuff, but only one feature. So I was interested in like experimenting with the way that we work and seeing if there's a better way. And so that was kind of what motivated trying to just like lead kind of direct on the music, be like the director of the music basically. Um, but, uh, we had very different ideas about what the music should be. So that didn't really work out. (laughs) It ended up just being easier to kind of fall in line and, and, and riff on what the director wanted. Um, I think it depends. Yeah. Each relationship is going to be different. And like the more confident the director is and what they want things to sound like, the more I'm inclined to kind of take a step back and let them direct. And I'll just like try to riff off of what they're saying. If someone is more hands off and is like, I don't really know, I don't really know about music and I don't really have a strong idea. Then, you know, that, that might be more of a situation where I would step in and basically direct myself. Were even though it, it didn't quite work, that kind of new approach to it, did you find there were still lessons that you learned that you carried forward? Yeah, for sure. I think that experience gave me perspective about how labor intensive it can be to work that way, to try to just score a movie um, with no guidance. Yeah, I mean, I think if we had continued to work that way, I probably would have written three, four times as much music as is actually in the movie. But because we didn't, there's very little music and that I wrote for Under the Silver Lake that we didn't actually use. Maybe a couple, maybe there's like four or five minutes of music that didn't make it into the movie. Um, so it's like a very like the uh, for me, I kind of think of scores sometimes in that way, like a like like I have a batting average, and I'm trying to write as little music as possible. <laughs> because it's so it's it's a really challenging and intense process at times i mean and that that was like even though i i would say my batting average on that movie was like pretty high it still took over a year to do it because the form factor was so challenging for me like writing for orchestra so i kind of needed those victories to help me um and sort of the larger picture was part of the reason you wrote such little music for it also because it's quite an intricate score in the same way the film is with all these different, you know, themes and narratives over interlinking and over crossing each other. Was that something you were trying to replicate in the score and kind of drawing these, these lines? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of motifs in the score and, um, the complexity of writing that type of music definitely made it slow, a slow process and made me loathe to write a lot of very like versions of things. <laughs> like I really just wanted to nail it, uh, as much as possible. Um, that being said, I mean, I got fairly decent at writing in that style and I could do a couple minutes of it a day. There was just a lot of detail. It's a very, very detail oriented style of, of working for someone who had no classical background, was not, was not writing for orchestra in a traditional way. Like I was just using samples. There's a certain like time intensiveness to that way of working that ultimately it ultimately worked out but it was just really taxing and it took a really long time to to get everything just right how many hours a day were you working on it at the peak i was probably working close to 12 like 12 hours a day 
Oh, but it's an intense day. Yeah, there were some breaks, which happens sometimes with film production, where for scheduling reasons of various kinds, um, everyone will just stop working um, because the burn rate is really high because there's so many people working on movie. I was working on it consistently, but just a couple hours a day in the beginning when I was doing like pre-production work, like I was writing Turning Teeth, the, this uh, this uh, rock song that's in the movie. and Can I dandy Warhols? Ask them. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've heard of them, but I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with oh. their music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that and, and doing the um, songwriter sequence in that movie, which is like a giant medley of popular music for the piano. That sort of stuff. You know, I was working on that consistently, but not not like crazy hours. And then we sort of ramped into it. At some point, the schedule, it becomes clear that, oh, like I need to work a lot in order to finish this. There's always that point in most projects for me where I basically work as less as little as possible and kind of procrastinate. And then it gets to a point where it's like I have to take this really I have to take this more seriously than I've been taking it. And so at times that has caused problems for me as in the sense that I've uh, just put myself in a position where I have to work like a lot in a short period of time. I don't know if this counts because it was just the whole, the timeline was just so long. There were many ebbs. It was, there was a lot of ebbs and flows for sure. But I, I would say altogether, I definitely, there were at least a couple of months where I was working like pretty intensely most days. Did you say that the so the songwriter scene and the songs performed in the film were the pieces that you did first? Yeah, yeah. So and there's also um, a cover of "To Sir with Love," which is played by like a quintet in one of the scenes in the movie. That that was all pre-production because they needed it. They needed it on set um, to coordinate. So yeah, I had to I had to do about that ended up being like almost twenty minutes of music just pre-production. Does that help though? Does that kind of give you an understanding of the world of the film and the tone of it before you start working on the score itself? I think, I think it did help. Yeah. I think for me, it was an education because I, it was only my second feature and I really wanted to understand better the process of, of making movies. Being a part of the pre being part of pre-production was actually really interesting. Having meetings with producers and um, you know, there was like coordination with actors and being on set uh, doing like lots of random stuff, like making sure that it was going to work. There wasn't really anybody else who was really on top of it. So it kind of fell on the music department, which was myself and, um, the score producer, uh, my colleague, Kyle Newmaster, who helped me a lot actually with like, um, orchestration and stuff. So we would like go to set and make sure that, uh, oh, and the music supervisor too. Uh, we would make sure that if they were filming, a quintet playing instruments that they were like holding the instruments right because they weren't actual musicians or you know there's a scene where uh the band in the movie is like performing on a hotel rooftop and they hadn't thought to hire like anybody to kind of give them some sort of choreography and so the director asked me to come up with something so i was doing like I was coming up with hand choreography uh <laughs> and like working with the with the actresses to like it was like really random stuff that i had never done before so, uh, and then just, just like learning what it's like to be on a set where it's really boring. Um, you're just well, sitting around, you're just sitting around most of the day and then you're needed for like one shot or something. So you're, you're just like doing nothing for, for like over 10 hours 
and then you're suddenly needed for like a half hour. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was good to, it was good to learn all that. And I got to go to some interesting locations. You know, we filmed at like, we filmed at a, in a mausoleum at a, at a, at a cemetery. We filmed in like a really fancy mansion on a, on a hotel rooftop, like all these really cool places. So it was, it was really neat. Uh, even though it was really boring. <laughs> <laughs> were you, were you living in LA at this point? I w- you moved there. Yeah, I was. I actually, part of the motivation to move to LA was this, this movie as well as the, the game solar ash, which I've mentioned that I've been working on for like four years. Uh, I was kind of, I was living in the Bay area out in Berkeley, um, outside of San Francisco. And, uh, um, I'd been there for about five years and I had lived five years in Boston previously. It was like, Oh, five years seems like a good amount of time. Maybe I'm ready for something different. I had, I had a lot of friends who had left and, uh, I had work, I had some really big projects coming up that were based in LA and I always liked visiting LA. So I thought I would, uh, yeah, give it a shot, try something different. Did living there and kind of inhabiting at least the physical world of the film to a certain extent impact your approach to it in any way or your understanding of what you wanted to do? I think it did. It's hard to say definitively or explicitly how it did, but I think just being in and around the neighborhoods where the movie was actually filmed was really interesting and kind of creepy in a good way. I mean, I didn't live that far from where a lot of these things are being shot. So whenever we had location shooting to do, I mean, I was driving like 15, 10, 15 minutes to the, to the location. Uh, so it was pretty wild. Yeah. And because the movie is like this sort of, it's about like all these conspiracies. Um, it was fun. It was like fun to have that sort of like these ideas kind of like uh, put on top of my own experiences just living here. It was really neat. It was like being on location, like working on location, which, uh, yeah, it's cool. I liked it. We were talking about the songwriter scene a little while back or a few moments ago. In terms of constructing that, how did you go about that? Did you get the selection of songs and then were you kind of responsible for stitching them together? Uh, That was like a really big collaborative process with the director, the editor, the producers. Like we had meetings about that scene and figuring out Oh, and the music supervisor, uh, score producer, like we were all involved in those meetings as far as figuring out what music we could actually use because the scene was written a certain way in the screenplay with certain songs. Not all of these songs were necessarily available. Um, and so this scene ended up probably being like the most expensive scene in the entire movie because of all the music licensing. Uh, so there had to be like changes made and um, you know, as the composer, like as part of the process of like suggesting alternatives that might work, you know, coming up with like the basic format of how things shift. And although to be fair, like the way that we went about it from a logistical standpoint with like preparing for the actual shoot was we brought on a friend of one of the producers who was a, a fairly good keyboardist who could like you know, play this stuff live, uh, in a kind of a rehearsal with the actors. Um, I would not have been, uh, the best choice for that. Um, I probably could have did it, but it it wouldn't have, it would have been like kind of ugly and kind of a waste. Like I probably would have been wasting time, like just screwing things up. So we all like me and like a couple other people 
we all kind of like arranged different um, pop tunes for piano, like very, very loosely just to have music, sheet music to give the keyboardist. And then they had a couple of like rehearsals with, with Andrew Garfield and, and the, um, and the actor who played the songwriter and just kind of got the general pacing of it down for what they wanted to do when they shot it. And then on set, the keyboardist was there and he was off, he was off screen playing playing a keyboard and then the actors had earpieces to hear the music so that they could like, you know, they could act around the music as it was changing through the various different songs. Uh, And it's funny because at some point on set, David had this idea. He's like, what if we put the keyboardist at the piano and we, we just shot his hands. And so they like, actually, they actually dressed him up and like, put his hands in makeup and stuff. And they did, uh, they did like a overhead shot of, of the keyboard. It's like playing the piano as if he was the actor, but the piano didn't have any, it was a special prop piano that didn't have any, um, acoustics. It, or? it didn't have any acoustics. Yeah. It didn't make any noise. So he kind of had to like, he kind of had to guess and like imagine that he was playing the right notes that must be so bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it just sounded really hard. <laughs> so, I mean, my, most of my role was like in maybe suggesting music that we could use in the beginning. And then uh, afterwards, I did a little bit of arranging. But afterwards, the post-production as far as, okay, how do we want this performance to actually sound? And like making it as you know interesting and expressive as possible. Um, and that's kind of where I did most of my work. Yeah, well, I was going to ask, because you know when you're kind of going, you're transitioning between the different songs and the medley, mm-hmm. are there elements of the score that come into it from the film itself? Yeah, there's a little bit of the score in the performance yeah. too. Yeah, and Turning Teeth as well. So that was all that was all worked on in post, like the actual sound of it. You kind of just needed the rough kind of skeleton of it to shoot the scene. Yeah, we needed the rough skeleton to shoot the scene, like the, the major touchstones, like smells like teen spirit and uh you know beethoven and la bamba or whatever and then um i just kind of fleshed it out in post um i had some ideas like one of one of the ideas that i kind of put into the movie was in the beginning he's sort of just he's sort of screwing around like with one hand and so i had the idea that he was playing like a like a satie piece uh with one hand I was just trying to think of something that he could do that would be like interesting and and something that I could actually put together that is feasible to play with one hand. <laughs> so that's why that's partially why it the scene starts with um Gymnopedy uh by Satie because it's kind of has like a it ha- it has like a form that you could play with one hand. Is um, it kind of go chronologically as well? Mm. No, it goes all over the place. Is it not it's all over the place? Yeah, it's all over the place. I mean, it's it's contextual to what he's talking about. So, you know, he talks about like he kind of introduces his history, and so he's like playing all he's like playing stuff that's you know in the past. But then he starts talking about like you know the protagonist's uh, you know his like sort of reality and like the things that he holds near and dear, and and like so he's kind of getting into this like blasphemous territory like towards the character towards Andrew Garfield's character where he's playing like spells like Teen Spirit and he plays uh he plays that Pixies, song think. by the Pixies yeah <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it's funny where 
you know, we're sitting there about it being all over the place in terms of the chronology and the history of it, which is kind of a similar thing to the world of It Follows, where there's no real defined time period. It kind of blurs the lines and it's taking place in an indistinguished yeah. period. How did that impact your approach as a composer when you don't have an actual kind of setting to latch on to and it's something a little bit more fantastical? Yeah, I mean, It Follows is intentionally anachronistic completely. Uh, like you're not supposed to know like really what the time period is it under the silver lake is, is, is supposed to be set in a very specific time period, uh, like 2006, I think, but obviously there's a lot of elements in that movie that are very strange and kind of give it a, a similar feel, like as far as being like out of time, you know, and under the silver lake, we really played into the references and the, um, some of the story beats, like, you know, all of the classic film kind of references, you know, it being very much a film noir style movie. I mean, the music kind of evokes all of that. So it has that very like mid-century Bernard Herman-esque kind of quality to it. But it also has touchstones from like, you know, Angelo Badalamenti and uh, video game soundtracks. You know, there's like whole Nintendo power sequence. And, you know, when he finds the, he finds the vault and, you know, there's like some very like Super Nintendo kind of stuff in the score too. So it's pretty all over the place, um, like the movie. So <laughs> I guess it kind of works. Uh, but it follows is um, even you know even more anachronistic, and but so we we kind of took a similar approach with that too. You know, we really kind of you know leaned into the ins- the influences, but at the same time, um, me being relatively unfamiliar with the references in both cases, I think actually allowed me to just kind of do what I th- just kind of maybe be a little bit more impressionistic about it, which I think also helps with avoiding being too specific. Like I think there are certainly people who watch it follows and they think, Oh, eighties movie. I think, um, more sophisticated audience doesn't, doesn't necessarily feel that or see that. And, um, I certainly like never thought of it that way. Um, and even though I was using like synths through the whole thing, like I never really thought of it as like an eighties kind of thing. I just, it just happened to be like the tools that I was using, um, to, to accomplish what we were trying to accomplish. Yeah. The scenes quite often start quite experimental and kind of noodling around in something a little bit more ambient and kind of free range. And then you maybe go into the slightly bigger synth heavy kind of yeah eighties brush strokes but then it's kind of got a 50s thing going on as well like you've spoken about psycho before it's got that that stabbing kind of thing to it yeah yeah i mean that's like the one of the references personal references that, that i have to to horror films because i'm not particularly well versed in horror and was never particularly interested in it so my touchstones were psycho and um like argento like it like italian like horror movies music like goblin and stuff like that so that's kind of that's kind of where i was coming from um can that naivety make it easier to come up with something original though by not being familiar with the reference points yeah i think so absolutely i think uh if you have a strong um personality as far as like making choices uh i was skeptical of the process of taking temp music and like replacing it i'd never done that before really but it actually proved to be really fruitful creatively for me to like listen to a bunch of new music like once twice maybe maybe you know just internalize a couple of like uh 
properties of the music or like what it's doing like you know oh like there's a there's a riser here or there's like a beat here that we have to hit and then just kind of start over and try to just you know use that structure or use some of the emotional um targets to to just kind of direct me in my own like you know in my own work process what was the what was the theme you wrote for it as well that was never used was it quite different or was it in a kind of similar vein mm. it, it was uh similar that's become part of my process to like try to write thematic music up front uh usually at the piano and it, it often doesn't work in the movie <laughs> but it helps me to figure out helps me to figure out the sound world of the film and to experiment with like you know harmonic choices melodic choices and so that was kind of where it it led me towards other things uh i think i shared it at one point but i don't i don't remember where that exists at this point it's interesting doing that is it does it almost not work in the film because it's too broad because you're using it in that way to establish the palette yeah it's like it's like if you write an overture or something like movies are not and, and, and like modern movies are not really set up that way. <laughs> the, there's not an expectation that there's going to be this like big overture. That's sort of like an old time. It's an old fashioned kind of um, expectation. So yeah, I mean writing just blindly thematically in the beginning, it's not tied to any scene. It's not tied to any particular timing. But then when you actually get into it in a, in a movie, the, in, uh, in a lot of cases these days, it, the music tends to need to have a very particular timing to it. So that's often why, you know, you could write something that's like, oh, yeah, this is this has the essence of the film. But there's no there's no one scene that this would actually work in. Um, it might work in like the credits or something like that. Uh, yeah, that's kind of been my experience with that. It's interesting you mentioned, you know, how it has to work quite specifically to the timing of it. Because in It Follows, what are you doing kind of like time signature wise? You seem to be a little bit, it's a weird signature. It's almost like off, like slightly, it unsettles you in that way. Yeah, I'm always open to using time signatures to do stuff like that. And I think horror is a great, it's a great outlet for being experimental and and also playing with people's expectations and making them uncomfortable. Uh, And I think time signature, yeah, time signature can, can do really do a really good job of that um so there's cues like detroit which is in five i think it's it shifts the time signature changes through that piece and i think there's probably a couple others that do that too um and then there are pieces that don't they don't really have a time i mean they i didn't really think about a time signature when i was writing them it's just they're just structured to the to the to the footage and so you know they're all over the place there's also the the, the the main the sort of the stabbing psycho kind of motif and then it has these like this percussion this like bamboo percussion which is in like 13 or something like that <laughs> uh <laughs> it's mostly just chat 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 but then there's like a it's like chat 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 yeah there's like a few more than you expect yeah like there's like a it just it doesn't never lines up quite right so um stuff like that is that one of the rules you establish at the beginning like time signature where you look at that when you're coming up with that theme and establishing the palette or is it something that's a little bit more malleable over the course of the it's malleable and and i don't usually i don't usually like explicitly write it out or say what what the rules are sometimes i'll just get into it and see where that takes me and that can be really fruitful like the 
the the opening cue and it follows is the first thing I wrote for the movie. If you don't count the the piano stuff, which I might have done first, but first thing you wrote that's in the movie. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I just the, what's in the movie is basically exactly the same as what I wrote. Uh, I think it. I don't think we had very very many alterations to that. I just started building like sounds and kind of coming up with a sound world for the movie. Um, I, I don't know. It just kind of worked out. I think initially our plans are really different for that film and we were sort of under time pressure. And so I kind of did the only thing that I felt like I could do, which was make a synth score in the amount of time that we actually had. What were the initial rules that you set down for the pilot of triple frontier and the soundscape of that film? Ah, initially what we did was, well, I did a couple of concept pieces I did some piano stuff, but I mostly just I, I mostly just uh, did some stuff with guitar, and uh, it was very guitar and percussion centric. So, and that was just kind of what I was imagining: slightly psychedelic guitar stuff, and um, lots of like toms and like other kinds of other kinds of uh, uh, drums like that. Um, and that's kind of what the first two things that I wrote for it looked like. And then I started incorporating like bass, lots of bass guitars and slowly kind of like figured out a couple of other sounds for the movie. And then it wasn't until later that like brass came into it. Um, and that was more of like a function of having an orchestral budget. It wasn't really a plan. Uh, and then it kind of became one later. Yeah. That's kind of how that, that started with some blind writing just to kind of be like, Oh, are we in the right because there's a conversation in the beginning, especially with new people that you haven't worked with before. There's like a conversation about like, what is this going to sound like? And you want everyone to be generally on the same page about what you're doing. So um, it was good that, you know, I was able to do some early sketches that they, they generally liked the direction. And so that, that helped a lot with just communicating with a bunch of new people. Yeah. It's an interesting score because it changes quite a lot throughout. Like you mentioned the brass, there's often scenes that are, fueled by that and it gives it quite a kind of classic action movie type feel but then i think it's the chopper scene you know when it's going down it's pretty much only drums i think is it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. very yeah. sparse i'm trying to remember i think that was sort of a product of happenstance because i think i was like working on that cue and i got to that seek i got to that part and i was like oh we want this to be big and i just like started doing drum stuff there <laughs> and i didn't really get around to doing the rest of the the orchestra or the rest of the sound palette, but I kind of just sent it as it was. And they're like, oh, actually this is really cool with just yeah. the drums. And I, it, it, I think given sort of the, the way the movie is structured with like lots and lots of sound effects, um, there wasn't always, it, it could be kind of a battle as far as like getting the music to come through. That was one of the, I think one of the nice little and in, like interesting kind of victories in the score. How finished are the sound effects when you're recording that? How clear an idea do you have of how that's going to feel? It's kind of half and half, honestly. It's like generally in the right direction. It's generally what it's going to be more or less, but this the actual sound effects that come in are going to be of a much higher quality um, because a lot of the sound effects, I think, that are in the editor production and um, you know just stuff that the editor grabs. So you know, then they had Skywalker like do the sound for that movie. So it was pretty pretty good 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 sound sound effects it's almost similar to temp music yeah yeah 
Yeah, exactly. Were are you aware of the soundtrack when you're composing? Do you know what music is going to punctuate it? Oh, like the like and the source, about credence and stuff. Yeah, the source music. Uh, yes and no. There's there's a general kind of idea about what it's going to be, and it's in the edit. But then things can change, and they often change towards the end of the film based on licensing considerations and director wants to make has you know decides to to not use score somewhere or or things like that and so um there were a few scenes in that movie that got score got replaced by uh by like uh, licensed music it's interesting so yeah okay i imagine then that they won off your score because when you listen to it the score kind of feeds quite nicely into it and then i'll feed quite nicely out of it so i imagine that must then impact the choice of song Mm. rather than the other way around Usually when the the source music, the licensed music is replaced with something else, then suddenly it doesn't work well with the score because a lot of times there's not there's not enough consideration given to the way that score and score and licensed music like feed into each other. That's usually, you know, something that music editor and the sound and this and the composer are primarily focused with. And for me, like there are there are pieces of uh, source music in the mo- in the movie like Metallica and stuff that were there the whole time pretty much and so um, I designed some of the cues to like yeah to kind of lead out of that and uh, sometimes like there there were there were situations in both it follows and under the Silver Lake where material got changed and there was like a really nice way maybe that like a cue like kind of segued into a, a source piece of music that unfortunately didn't stay because the the source music had to be changed for licensing reasons can that impact the way like the kind of the context that the rest of your score is in as well like if you've established a motif at some point and then it's swapped out for source music can that change the way the rest of the score is viewed absolutely in Triple Frontier, originally the the final scene had uh, a cue in it, and the cue was a continuation of a motif, and it was sort of like it was sort of like the uh, it was sort of like the conclusion, you know, of of the motif in a certain sense. Um, and actually, it's on the soundtrack. I I included it on the soundtrack, uh, even though it's not in the movie. Um, it's sort of like just a more developed version with like with like percussion and guitars and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I think it absolutely changes. Um, the total it changes everything uh, especially when you're talking about something like the last piece of music in the movie I mean that really changes like how things feel does it ever make you think differently about your scoring going forward in terms of adapting in a way that it makes sense if certain parts are removed I guess there's no way to predict that though there's no way to predict it really I mean I guess you can be you can try to be aware of what the thinking is and that there are some se- sequences where the where the director might be thinking about it, you can only do your best. It's not always going to be possible. I think um, we've spoken quite a bit, you know, about establishing the palette for a film and building up the soundscape of it and the rules which you're going to operate off of. How does that work for something like Adventure Time when you're coming into a world that has already been established sonically? Yeah, for a few seasons. It's a good question. I think because of the format of those episodes where they brought in guest directors and the show had a totally different aesthetic, like, or it was slightly different. There was a certain amount of freedom. I think that I felt, and they were really chill about it. Like there were no, 
nobody was like being very like, Hey, it needs to like fit the sound world in this particular way. So I had a lot of freedom to just do what I thought would, would, would work in that, in that context. Um, and so I came up with my own concepts as far as like what I thought it should sound like. And, um, so that's kind of led me down this path of sourcing, um, sounds from, from friends. And basically I got a bunch of people to send me stuff like, um, recordings of guitars and answering machines and Game Boys and all kinds of random stuff. And I basically just used all that to make the score for, for the episode. And, you know, I, I also had my own like touchstone for Adventure Time because I was a fan of the show. So, um, you know, I, I liked the general style of the music in the show. And I, I kind of tried to pay homage to that in my own way and, you know, bring my own my own spin on it. Yeah, it's, about, like, it's almost like putting your own personality into that soundscape. Yeah, exactly. I mean... For me, though, that's not something that I have a choice in. It just kind of happens. So (laughs) (laughs) unless someone's like beating me up saying like, hey, you can't do that. You have to be exactly this. But that like almost (laughs) never happens. So (laughs) what would coming back again to the idea of roles and in the soundscape, what would prompt you to break a rule that you'd established? Maybe some new development in the identity of the of the piece that would change the thinking um, or it could just be a shift in thinking on my end about like what what's right for for the project I will make guidelines for myself but I usually don't think of them as hard and fast rules I think of them more as guidelines and you know I might I might follow them the entire time or I might kind of move away from them over time um, and it might be or it might be like based on a certain element of like the, maybe the beginning of something like the beginning of the chronology of a movie or a game versus like, oh, now I'm working on the later stages and the rules don't really apply as much here. Like I need to kind of make some changes to make this work because the narrative context is different. So it's all pretty loose, I think, and just try to stay on top of, you know, stay on top of it to some degree. 